0: Welcome to another episode of Khaki Malaki. Today, we have on the wonderful Julie Wilwright, who is talking to us about her book, Sisters in Arms, which is all about female warriors from antiquity all the way to the new millennium. We have a bit of a classic Khaki Malaki question that we always start with, (laughs) and we always ask our authors, can you summarise your wonderful book in 30 seconds? Okay. Uh,
1: Well, my book is about... um, It's really a history of women's participation in active warfare from antiquity to the modern day
2: brilliant to the point i feel like 10 <laughs> nine, seconds and we like that it, it varies between like 30 seconds go up to a minute it just it's interesting to hear but we've got a whole podcast to find out more about the book anyway so <laughs> go thing. straight in but yeah. i'm going to ask you straight from the off do you have a favorite woman in the the book and your research you know you cover the likes of Mary Reed and Annie um, and Bonnie Christian Davies and Maria Box, um, Bosch-Kariva I don't know if I say that right every time I try to but there's so many credible stories in your book like surely there must have been one that you're like wow what a badass kind of girl in a way.
1: <laughs> well there are so many of them there are so many of them but in fact I have to say that um, the one who I suppose is my favorite is Flora Sands because she was someone who um, I actually got access to her papers. And so, you know, when you're reading somebody's letters and you're reading somebody's diaries and and accounts of what it was like in the moment, you just feel really, really close to them. So Flora Sands, um, for people who've never heard of her before, she was an English woman who had done, she'd had all kinds of adventures. Um, She'd gone off traveling um, and she was in her late 30s the war, the First World War breaks out. She has experience from the, from the what was known as the Fanny, the first aid um, nurses yeomanry. So that meant that she knew how to ride, um, she knew how to do first aid, and she tried to sign up with the Red Cross. They weren't interested, so she took a position with the uh, with the International Red Cross and went to Serbia, and she served during the typhus epidemic. So I mean, she was surrounded by people. In this hospital in a country where she didn't know how to speak the language, um, and uh people were just dying around her. And um, she describes things like um being in in a hospital where she's performing surgery, and uh someone walks in and says, <laughs> you know, like, what are your qualifications for performing surgery? And said, well, I don't have any, but there's nobody else. Yeah. So that so that Mid- was surgery. <laughs> But yeah it, well Sergio on,
0: floor,
1: yeah. Sergio on someone's toes I think it was oh, okay but anyway so she um so that was kind of her her kind of baptism of fire in Serbia and she really fell in love with the country and there were there's a whole history of uh, British women including the um the Scottish uh, a, a number of Scottish women doctors and nurses who went to Serbia during the First World War and actually founded hospitals and were incredibly important to that, co- to that, uh, to that um, conflict and helping the Serbian people. So Flo- what happened to Flora Sands in 1915 was that um, she stayed in Serbia and she was attached to um, an ambulatory, uh, to a regiment, they had an ambulatory hospital the army was going into retreat into um, Albania because uh, the Austrian forces were sort of pushing them, pushing at their rear. And uh, so she was asked whether she would like to remain with the stationary hospital or whether she would like to become a soldier. And she said, well, I'll become a soldier. And so you have this remarkable account of a woman who, um, I mean, she kind of admits that she was one of those women and i found lots of them in my research who wanted to become a soldier because that's what boys did that's what men did and you know we're we're, we're talking about the very beginning of the 20th century although i can give you plenty of examples before that a woman who wanted to be active they wanted to participate um, and they felt their lives were very very constrained and so They couldn't imagine doing these things as women, so they had to, I think, sort of imagine themselves as men in order to gain access to to jobs or to trades or to, you know, to travel. I mean, there were all sorts of things which were denied them. In any case, with Flora Sands, um, uh, she joins the, uh, the Serbian regiment and she serves with them throughout the whole of the campaign. She's twice wounded really badly. And uh, she, when she is allowed home on leave, she comes back to the UK um, and she wears her uniform everywhere. um, And she does a lot of fundraising, but she's also like a kind of unofficial ambassador. And then after the war, she stays on with the Serbian ambassador. And again, she fulfills that kind of ambassadorial function, does a tour of Australia. She also goes to, before the war has ended, she actually goes to France. And she does a tour, and again is sort of um, championing the uh, the Serbian cause, and um, and then she marries one of her fellow officers, <laughs> and then during the Second World War, she's actually called up. She's puts busy on her hands, one, Then God. yeah, puts on her uniform, um, and unfortunately, um, you know, the uh, the Yugoslavian forces didn't, you know, were, were pretty quickly defeated by the uh, by the Germans, and she's imprisoned. Um, And then what she does is, um, I I, I love this detail, she puts on a dress um, and that's how she (laughs) manages to leave because they're not so- Brilliant, I love that. (laughs) Uh, And and she just was so, um, to me, she was incredibly courageous. Um, She was also very honest um, about the kind of difficulties and complexities that she encountered. So one of the things that she talks about is how after the war she goes to visit one of her former officers and um, she she describes feeling sort of slightly awkward. She's wearing, you know, wearing a dress and she's got a handbag and I think she might even have had a hat. And she knocks on his door and he appears and says, oh, I can't possibly talk to you dressed like that. And um, he makes his wife, I like that detail, makes his wife go upstairs and fetch an old uniform and she has to actually dress in this uniform before he can sit down and talk to her again so you know there's a lot to unpack in that little anecdote but she says many times in her she wrote two memoirs and then of course I had access to her letters but she says many times that she felt like she occupied this space which is neither completely with the men and it certainly wasn't with the women and she really didn't know where to place herself and I think that that's something which a lot of the women that I was looking at Um, found, and Mm -hmm. there's something really poignant about that, I think. God, that really
2: is. That's such an incredible story. How do you mind me asking, how did you get access to her letters and stuff?
1: Um, Well, I have been researching this subject for a very long time, and it was actually um, many, many years ago before I had grey hair. (laughs) I was was a student at um, the University of Sussex, and I was doing my MA, and to be completely honest, I think I just I don't know how I tracked, I think it was through the Imperial War Museum that I found right. um, Floresan's relations and they very kindly invited me into their home. Oh,
2: wow.
1: I could look at their at their collection. So yeah, it was, it was just, I think for people who study history, there is nothing more exciting than getting access to documents that no one else has seen and feeling like you've got this sort of fresh take on a story. Definitely.
0: So, oh, what an incredible
2: experience that must've been.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really I, think works. Interesting. I mean, Flora Sands, what a wonderful story that um, you've uncovered there. I I think it's really, really um, pertinent at the moment what you were saying about uh, kind of using the masculinity to further their career. You kind of said they didn't, they they weren't trying to be men, but they were kind of getting the rewards that would come with that masculine, with the masculinity, if that makes sense. So it is correct in the sense that they occupy such a strange space in history between what people often perceive women around the military as like camp followers or things like that as as opposed to actually being in uniform and like you said making his the officer's wife get the uniform so that she could change out of the dress into a uniform and I was going to ask as well so she clearly didn't get any backlash when she would wear her uniform at home then because she would wear her uniform post-war was
1: there well, well, she didn't, she didn't wear it after the war, but when she came, when she came back on these, um, on her sort of um, periods of leave, oh, okay, and yeah. she would be, and, and no, she was absolutely faded. Okay. She was, uh, you know, she describes taxi drivers stopping her in the street and saying, oh, I know wow. who you are and what you're doing is wonderful. And um, she was invited by generals to dine with them. I mean, she was a real celebrity. Mm. And she even had a little postcard made up of herself um, colorized uh, photograph of um, her in her uniform and that would sell at places like the Imperial War Museum. <laughs> so um, Yeah, and, and I think that was another thing that I found really interesting and was definitely a thread and, and something which was sort of, um, I found I think even more strongly when I revisited this subject recently for Sisters in Arms was seeing all these um, cases of women who had been inspired by other women so one of the, one of my other sort of um, uh, uh, women who uh, you know, really stayed with me was Emma, uh, um, was Sarah Emma Edmonds. And she was a Canadian who was born in New Brunswick um, and she was running away from home. We're not quite sure why. She says, um, she, you know, she would say later in life um, in newspaper interviews that her father was trying to marry her off to somebody, an old farmer and she wasn't having any of it. So she um, disguises herself as a man, and she gets a job, believe it or not, selling Bibles. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> and, as you do. And she takes the name Frank, uh, Frank Thompson, Franklin Thompson. And she, got, she makes her way down to the United States, and she's actually earning good money. Um, she's living in Flint, Michigan, at the outbreak of the um, American Civil War. And she says that, that because she's Franklin Thompson and she's living in Flint, Michigan and every, all men are enlisting, that's what she does too. Wow. And um, one, one of the things that happens to her is that you know, she maintains her disguise pretty much, um, I think it was for three, for, for three years. And then she started to get sick, she got malaria and um, she was worried about getting found out. But one of the people who who did find out about her was she had a friend and um, they went everywhere together. And um, he, he describes how, you know, he and his friend Frank would share a bed together and they would go to church together and they were on new nursing duty together because of course this is a time before you had female nurses. Mm-hmm. And, then there, and then in his diary, there are these two pages that are glued together. And when, you know, I found this in an archive uh, at the University of Michigan, and I opened up those pages, and it says, my friend Frank is a woman. And uh, his feeling, his feeling was, um, you know, he felt really betrayed, not by the fact that, you know, not sort of objecting to the fact that here's a woman and what the hell is she doing here, but he felt betrayed because I think he felt really stupid that he hadn't figured it out. Um, but the other thing that was remarkable was that he did, he kept her secret and, and glued the pages together and said, you know, wrote at the top not to be opened until after the authors, I think it was at the writer's death, something like that. Um, and then, at, you know, and then there are all these, um, you know, historians now who've uncovered, you know, really remarkable numbers of women who were serving during the, the civil war on both sides, something, you know, there's one estimate that as many as 400. And then there's about 200 that have been really well documented. So we have names and regiments. And um, I, I I mentioned some of the other stories in my book.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's book, just incredible. Yeah. It's got so much. Yeah. It, there is so much packed into it. I love Sisters in Arms because there is so many stories packed into it. And I like the way you kind of spread it all together. One of, one of my big interests in history and military history is how the media can affect our perception of women. In the military, how do you think? If you, I mean, if you could summarize, I know it's a very broad question, but how do you think in general? Is there any patterns you've noticed, or any particular era of history where you think, God, the media really did those women dirty there, and they didn't? They could have done that a bit better.
1: Well, I think it's um. Well, first of all, yes, they're they're kind of immediate contemporary accounts that are that are problematic, I guess. Um, uh, but also, I think a lot of it's to do with the way that military history has been written, and there's been this assumption that women are peripheral, um, that women are not important. And then, when you know, when I was doing my initial research in the 1980s, I kept finding more and more and more examples. But I thought, well, you know, my initial impetus to write um, my first book, which is called *Amazon's Military Maids*, was to say, well, no one has ever collected these stories and said. Well, they're significant because these patterns keep reoccurring, um, and then you know I have to say that one of the sources would be you know military histories that had been written in the 18th or 19th century, in which these just appear as funny, amusing little stories. Um, <laughs> uh, but then you but then you know you start finding that that um, they also appear in the newspaper accounts. So in the 19th century, when I was looking. For these cases. And remember, I was doing my research back in the 1980s and I was going through newspaper, you know, the Time subject yeah. index. And, it, you know, there's no keyword searches. Um, oh my God. You know, nothing like that. You know, this is long before the internet. Um, so it was really, it,
0: well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really felt like looking for a needle in a haystack. And nonetheless, I found all, you know, I found as many cases as I did. And, um, and what you see as a pattern is that they're, they're just kind of, they're either dismissed or they're amusing anecdotes or their stories are kind of rewritten or um, they're kind of even written out of history. So when my book, uh, when Amazons and Military Maids came out, I actually got invited to this conference in Switzerland that was being held by the Swiss army. And I um, uh, I, what, the guy who had invited me the historian who had invited me said he wanted me to come because he read my book and he was inspired to go back and look at um a swiss you know the swiss um armies uh you know women participating in the swiss army during the napoleonic campaigns and he said that he actually found these deliberate this these accounts where the women had been deliberately written out like literally you take one account from the 19th century and there they are and then a, an account from 50 years later and they're gone so is
2: there did you know sorry is there like a reason for that or is it simply just kind of wanting to rewrite women out of history to keep it quite male dominated
1: yeah is it is it a, is there a well I don't think it's as as, as much as a. Conspiracy. I think mm. that's sort of putting it far too bluntly, um, but I think it's really just this sense of you know someone comes to those to, to that account and thinks, but this is just not important. And I think yeah. it's that sense of you know women are just not important to this story, um, which accounts for why they're left out. And I think that happens time and time again.
2: Oh, but, but it's sad to hear isn't it but then it's great to know that you've now kind of brought them back into the limelight with your book and obviously you cover such a broad period and and you've already mentioned it there's kind of like reoccurring themes and patterns and kind of similarities you know, was there anything particular that kind of linked the women in warfare throughout the years like a kind of common theme you saw so whether it was in the 20th century or the 14th for example was there kind of one reoccurring element to it
1: yeah, I mean, I think that there were many reoccurring elements. I mean, I think one of them, one of the most important was that um, you had women who belonged to military families, so they had a brother or they had a father um, and that or, or, you know, there's lots of cases of um, women, uh, military wives. I mean, particularly in the, you know, you think about those long 18th century campaigns and I found, um, you know, cases in the French army in particular where, you know, their husband has died and then they just take over. <laughs> or Floris, uh, not Floris, I'm sorry, Christian Davies. I mean, yeah. that's a, an earlier case, but uh, you know, her husband goes missing. And so she decides that she's going to go and find him. She's Dublin publican, leaves her children behind, goes to find him. Well, it takes her 13 years to find him. And when she does, she says, we shall live as brothers until the end of the campaign. And then when she, she gets found out, um, as so many of them did because of injury, um, they're kind of ceremonially remarried. And then she occupies the role of a military wife. But the military wives, I mean, I know you mentioned earlier sort of the notion of the camp follower, but these women were doing so much more. They were doing, you know, they were, they were responsible for finding food, they were doing the nursing, they were doing the laundering, which was really, really important in terms of keeping the army going, or cleaning equipment or finding equipment. I mean, this whole range of services that they provided. And, you know, I can't help but think that there must have been women who were gained some understanding of how the military works and how it operates and logistics and and wanting power. And uh, I mean, and, and one of the other things that was a really important recurring theme was the way in which um, I mean, I was mentioning, sorry, I, got, I think I got completely sidetracked when I was telling you about Sarah Emma Edmonds because Sarah Emma Edmonds Very interesting. says that, um, you know, sort of later in life when she's interviewed, she says that she was inspired to go off and become Franklin Thompson um, by reading a book called Fanny Campbell, the Female Pirate Captain. So Fanny Campbell, the fe- Female Pirate Captain was a kind of cheap paperback. But it was this idea that you could do that, that a woman could do Mm. that. And there were so many women who said that they had heard a story. And then I found this whole incredible link between, um, I mean, I mentioned who the Amazons really were. They were these Scythian women who had come from, you know, this nomadic tribe um, from the area around the Black Sea. And those women um, become the Amazons. They're kind of mythologized by the Greeks. But what you find in that area of um, the Ukraine is that, you know, 19th century, we have Nadesna Derova, who becomes a cavalry maiden and fights, um, uh, fights with the cavalry regiment against Napoleon's, Napoleon's forces. But she becomes kind of fated later, later in life as this sort of um, kind of proto-feminist. And so other, you know, young women who are interested in the, the woman question come and visit her, pay homage to her. And then what I found was during the First World War, you have women who are petitioning the Tsar to join his army, and they cite Nadezhda Dorova. Also, what's going on at the same time is that you have um, a Russian uh, woman who writes this series of um, books, adventure books for girls, and she's got a Nadezhda Dorova character who becomes Princess Nina. Um, and then by the Second World War, um, I found uh, I, I've written about Lud- Ludmila Pavlichenko, who's you know this great celebrated sniper who goes to on this tour of um, the United States and Britain in 1942, and she writes an article for the American Communist Party magazine, and also cites Nadezhda Durova and says, yes, uh, we Russian women have always fought. So you can just see this line of women, and they're all, they all know about these characters, they're all looking backwards, they feel that they belong to this tradition, but it—but it's sort of, it's funny how it's kind of contained, and it's not part of our kind of bigger conversation.
2: That's so interesting how they've been, all been influenced, and I think touched what you said on earlier on, it's that element of freedom, you know, the fact that someone else has done it so i can also do it too it's like that reaffirming belief that women are capable of doing it as well
0: so interesting yeah as well as what happens when you actually platform these stories and actually show them to people and then people do get inspired and then it all continues and it's Mm. quite an amazing process i'm sure to have researched so yeah apart from the um apart from the modern day where obviously women aren't in the military now largely welcome and it's largely an inclusive institution now in your opinion could you pick like pinpoint any moments that have been uh, maybe like defining moments for women in the military has there been or has it been more of a slow evolution or has there been any points where you could say that was really important that was really important
1: well i think um i think if we're going to talk about um uh britain right now i think we are at a moment there's a kind of revolutionary wow, okay. moment happening. Yeah. There, there is definitely a Me Too moment happening. And I don't think that women, women service women in Britain feel that they belong. Um, and I don't know whether you've been following this, but um, Sarah Atherton has been uh, chairing a um, defense subcommittee on women in the military. And she wrote this, gave this incredible interview to the House magazine recently. Um, that report is about to come out and it's probably going to be a bit of a bombshell. Um, but she said that when um, when uh, sort of oh, you know, there was this open call for women in the military to talk about their experiences, she said she got sixty calls in one hour. She's had wow. over four thousand, and a lot of them are really, really um, pretty, uh, pretty shocking examples of uh, sexual assault, mm-hmm. um, sexual harassment, and these feelings of unbelonging. And I've also talked to. Um, uh, to um, retired Lieutenant Colonel um, Diane Allen, who's written a, a really wonderful memoir called Forewarned about her experiences. And she talks about exactly that, you know, women being made to feel unwelcome, and, uh, and and really not wanted, um, not being given promotions. Um, and th- what's going on in Britain has also is also happening in Canada. It's also, um, lots of cases in the United States. And so there are lots of ways in which this can be addressed. Um, but I think that, you know, right now is a moment of revolution.
2: Oh, that's so wow. interesting yeah, to think okay. of. Yeah, I, w- I wasn't th- going to think that today was the revolution. But of course, <laughs> it, it, it is There's so much change that's happening now.
1: Yeah. You know, it's brilliant.
0: I yeah, I mean, I think When I look back, actually, even my own, my own journey in military history across uni, I started off, like I said, I've had an interest in media perceptions of the military, but also I went into, I was researching my dissertation in third year, looking at media perceptions of the army in Vietnam, of the American army in Vietnam. Mm. Um, and it was when, I was, when I was researching that, that was when I started to find all these stories come through about all these really horrific things that soldiers had done and the things that Vietnamese women had, had to experience at the hands of American soldiers. And that, yeah, like I said, that was in, in university. That's one of my first times where I looked at this whole scope of right how have women actually been talked about in the military where do they come in here because same i had gone into first year of uni as a 19 year old thinking I like military history so I'm probably gonna remember one of my supervisors said oh yeah you know it's a bit of an old boys club you know you might struggle a little bit but you know he was just trying to be honest and prepare me for it but yeah I mean it's kind of it's a little bit weird how it, it's always a sexual assault um, thing that draws you in mm. role in the military which is I guess a bit of a shame but yeah I mean you, you yeah you, like as you said this report's come out recently and I'm sure it will be a proper a massive cultural shock in a bombshell but it is interesting
1: how that is hmm. something that's just you know well well I should I should I should just um uh, correct you there it hasn't yet come out but it oh. is going to come out It's it, it's it's due out imminently yeah oh okay Brilliant. so so this is going to be an incredibly um uh sort of um topical <laughs> topic. Yeah podcast certainly (laughs) so now I mean we've talked I I could talk to you for hours about
0: just the book but I want to know a little bit more about what got you into history what how did you start researching women in history okay
1: well well the very first um the very first uh story that I came across was um so I was doing my undergraduate degree in Canada um I was actually took a course on the history of women in Canada um again this was in the 1980s and uh, my lecture gave this, you know, she was talking about this, the first white woman to travel to the west of Canada. and she came uh, disguised as a man from the Orkney Islands. Um, she called herself John Fubister. And John Fubister got found out because John Fub- because uh, there was a Hudson's Bay Company officer who describes in his diary how John Fubbister was feeling, this Orkney lad was feeling indisposed. Um, you know, it's Hogmanay, it's New Year's Eve, everybody's drinking, uh, uh, there's lots of sort of merriment going on. Um, John Fubbister comes, knocks on the door, and says he's indisposed, he lays down on the hearth and he proceeds to give birth to a baby. So. Oh. so okay, yeah, that's captivating. Story. Is that, what, what is this woman doing here? So that, that kind of got me going. And that was when I started finding all these other incredible stories about women who had done amazing things. Uh, and I thought, wow, that, that is really, really so fascinating. And, and even though she wasn't she wasn't in the military, she was in this kind of quasi-military organization. Um, and also, uh, you know, I thought, well, she's how is she also able to do the work? Not only able to do the work, you know, and, and there's one account where, where it says, you know, she did the work um, well you know as well as any other man but she's also doing it while she's pregnant um, My God. So, so you know it's the, it was this really incredible story and then that kind of set me off and I, I think that um, I mean I've also been a journalist as well and I've you know um, done radio documentaries and done uh, documentary films and I think that I just love dealing with real stories I love going out and talking to people and finding people's stories and um, turning them into narratives and sharing them
2: Oh, that's lovely. I kinda of, I was gonna ask how did you get from that initial point to where you are now, but you kind of answered that like that and if that bite to want to find out more and discover more women It just led you on this incredible path in your career. so I guess really what I said, if you could bust say a historical myth in any of your like anything in the what Not would it be? History, we love this question,
1: yeah. <laughs> Well, I think the myth that I would bust is that um, that women are marginal. Women are marginal to military history. No, they're not. They're central, and that that um, that the, there's so many more questions that we need to ask. And I mm. think that when you ask those questions, it makes you look at the sources very differently.
2: What kind of questions would you be asking then? Was mm. that not like to give it away? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think, uh, I think I would ask, um, I would look differently at, I, I would, first of all, I think there's, a, there's an awful lot of research to be done on how many women there were, where they were, what they were doing, um, and what the sources tell us, because mm-hmm. often there's a lot more information that you can find out from the sources than, than we've, we've been led to believe, but it's where you look. It's where you look and what questions you ask. I mean, one of the other areas that I've done a lot of research into, um, you know, one of my, my favorite topics is Matahari. So Matahari, female spy, but she'd also had this incredible career as a, as a dancer. And she, she was one somebody who just had this incredible life. And um, when I first, so I, I wrote that, I started doing my research on her in the 1990s. And I had the sort of arrogance of youth and I read all these biographies and I thought, but they're all missing the point. <laughs> and um, I thought, but this is all about sexual politics. It's how, you know, the documents were available or were just mm. available then. And I thought, but you know, she's on trial because she said this history as a, as a courtesan and uh, that is her real crime, her real crime yeah. is a sexual crime. It's yeah. not about. It's not about giving secrets to the Germans. No. Do you think she's a
2: spy then? Oh, yeah, she definitely was. Yeah. She really was.
1: Because because there's a lot of uh, the German archives have been opened and, you know, it's pretty clear that she was. And she kept lying about what she did. I don't think she did that much as a spy, but she certainly did enough to warrant um, a prosecution by the French. But it's one of those weird cases where... I think I'd read this about Ethel Rosenberg. Um, a review, you know, there's a new biography of Ethel Rosenberg where they, where someone had said, um, just because you, just because you're guilty doesn't mean that you can't be framed. And I think that that's what happened to Matahari was that mm. he was framed by the French. They didn't know what she'd done, um, and so they concocted, you know, they evidence against her, but she was guilty. So it's a really complicated story. Oh wow! Um, but yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so endlessly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. definitely.
0: Gonna, yeah, you're always going to find something new, and I have to ask as well because you you you've mentioned her in your book that Cynthia Enloe was one, probably one of the defining historians. I read her books, and that um, I think "Bananas, Beaches, and Bases" was one of the books that made me go. Ah yes, if you actually question women in the military in this way, like you said, if you're asking those different questions, absolutely blows your mind. Like it changes your viewpoint entirely, doesn't it? So yeah, it's nice to see her mentioned in your book. One of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well well Cynthia was a big inspiration to me and, and she's someone who I've known over the years and oh, yeah, no. she's great.
0: Oh, honestly, I'd love to sit down and have a cup of tea with her. I think she'd be fantastic to have a chat with. So finally then, what has been the best moment of your career so far?
1: Oh. that's so difficult <laughs> <laughs> well I have to say I have to say when I was 28 years old and got a copy of my first book I think I was just I was floating down Charing Cross Road I remember that I wrote this thing <laughs> that was a pretty good copy like, please read it read it <laughs> yeah that was a pretty good moment oh I bet that was exciting
0: to hear about like you what got you into history and obviously the process of the book it is fantastically written and it was honestly a joy to oh thank you
1: thank you
2: so this is we're going to finish up on our fun round now this is kind of our favorite round we'll ask you a set of questions and kind of give your immediate answer to so if you're ready we'll dive in sure okay so who's your favorite figure in all of history
1: Okay, well, I'm going to say Mata Hari.
2: <laughs> of course, of course. I think that's compl- especially how you explained it. I yeah, I can understand why. Okay, who's your least favorite figure in all of history? Oh, Margaret
1: Thatcher. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Like
2: that.
0: We haven't had her for a while. Actually. No, we haven't.
2: No, yeah, bring her up, bring her back. <laughs> um, if you went, were- okay. So, if you're going to go on a road trip with three people from history, who would you want in your car?
1: Okay, I've decided that I'm going to take in my car Boudicca, oh okay, Mary Lacy and Flora Sands. Who's Mary Lacy?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Mary Lacey was an eighteenth-century uh, shipwright. Okay, a master builder in Deptford. Oh wow, like, I oh, think we would have a lot to talk about. Yeah, who would definitely.
0: You in the car, would you have like who would you have? Would you have someone on the music, someone on snacks? Who'd be <laughs> have in
1: the back seats
2: who would be navigating would you have Boudicca navigating with you up front yeah i feel like
1: she'd be navigating wouldn't she yeah. uh, shield in the trunk that yeah that kind of yeah.
2: thing <laughs> i love it i love it Jump out. <laughs> okay the final one if you could go back in time for just one day where and when would you go to
1: you know I, I i think that's such a great question and i think i would go back to the day that war was declared in 1939 and i would be with my mother who was seven years old um, oh
2: where was she? Yeah. Um,
1: well she would have been at home uh, with her parents in, um, in Hampshire and uh, she was a war guest to Canada from the age of seven and it was this profoundly um, important uh, event in her life and I think that it would have been great to have been there with her. And,
2: yeah, Did you get to talk to her much about her memories of the war and stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. And in fact, I've, I think that um, my mother's experience and my father's experience, because my father was served at the end of the war, I don't know, I've had lots of people in the military in my family. And I think that that my maybe my interest in military history has been partly motivated by this desire to understand their experience, but also to understand to, to, to insert myself in the story, mm. to make sense of things. Um through doing my own research and and interrogating these stories and discovering them for myself. Yeah, definitely.
2: I think that's a lovely note to finish on. the
0: words out my mouth. Yeah,
1: I
2: yeah. I really is. Oh, Thank well, it's you been very much for Julie.
0: Yeah. Really. This has been fantastic. Honestly, it's actually the first podcast recording we've done in a while as well. Yeah, it? it's brilliant. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um did, did did um did I tell you that my book has been shortlisted for the um. For the British Army's military book of the year.
2: No, but we'll sing it up the praises here. How fantastic! When did you hear about that?
1: Oh, I heard a few. It was a few months ago. But but um, and and I have to say that I I haven't really thought of myself as a military historian. But um, I'm a, a, on the sh- on that short list is Margaret Macmillan. So I was like, oh my god, um, <laughs> that, that's pretty wonderful. Um. But but also that um, I just think I just think this is going to be a year in which we are going to be talking a lot about women in the military. So bodes um, well for me. And I really, you know, I feel really, um, you know, I really hope that the this report that comes out um, from the defense subcommittee, I really hope that that is meaningful, brings about meaningful change for service women, because well, yeah. um, those stories yeah. are really shocking. Mm,
2: um, wow. no that's what we want we want good meaningful change you know the time is now for it
1: yeah absolutely absolutely well this was great oh absolute
2: pleasure Pleasure. thank you so much for your time well really nice to meet you that was the lovely julie wheelwright talking about her book sisters in arms next week we are joined by kieran whitworth to talk about his book the Churchill Quiz Book, and i think me and phoebe are going to be quizzed about churchill so that's going to be an interesting one to listen to so
0: I guess we're at the bit now that I'm most nervous about, which is that Kieran is going to ask us a question. I'm laughing because me and Liv both look absolutely terrified at the moment. So I guess how it's going to work is that Kieran's going to ask us a question. I think me and Liv have pieces of paper. I mean, I've written Buzz on mine to be my my I want answer, so I'll hold that up if I think emphasis on the thing I know the answer <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah we'll see who can top the most points how many questions have you got for us Kieran?
2: Um, I've got 12 um, but we can some are, some are very quick sort of multi-choice etc <laughs> as well A B C answers so I think yeah I, I hope there's a good good mix for you here so, well, I,
0: you. Hope so. I hope I'm not too old now no. that would just be quite embarrassing for
2: me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can back. i blame if i do awful can i blame the fact that i've got covid as uh
0: <laughs> that my i've got brain covid brain as that's why i'm abysmal? in the meantime don't forget to like share and retweet you can find us on twitter at carkin until next time i've been phoebe Style, and i'm olivia smith and this is carkin larky signing up